In Romans chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, we're taken by Paul to the place of judgment, a place where every individual will one day stand before God, and we're told there that God will repay each man according to the deeds he or she has done. Eternal life to some, endless tribulation and anguish to others. They're not saved by works, but they're judged by them. Listen, the works we do reveal the faith that we have. Are we placing our faith in our own devices and efforts and morality? Or do we set all of our faith in the Savior that God has provided for all of our sins? Welcome everyone, it's a good day to be in God's Word. I'm Joel Van Hoogen, and this is The Bread of Life. Our program is brought to you by the International Disciple Making Ministry, Church Partnership Evangelism. Let me encourage you to learn more about the work we're doing all around the world. You can do so by going to traincpe.org. And to learn more about our missions fellowship in Boise, Idaho, go to breadoflifeboise.org. Today brings us to the end of a message entitled, When You Stand Before the Judge. The one who has faith in Jesus finds an outcome to that faith that is surprising. They live a life of good works, seeking God's glory, honor, and the purity that comes from Him alone. They put no confidence in their own goodness or their own good works, and yet the life of faith works. Through that faith, God produces something in us of His own saving grace that will pass through the fire of His judgment. But for the one who seeks to prove themselves by their own efforts, they begin living a life opposed to the truth that God is making known to them. They live in opposition to the hard things that God is telling them. And as a result of this, their lives turn more and more into what Romans 2.8 says is a life described by obeying unrighteousness. A life committed to your own good works and morality ultimately leads to servitude to unrighteousness. We begin now with an example of the life of a moralist who lives in opposition to the truth of God, and we see where it takes them. Their own work. That's the sum total of it. You add it up. Just a carrot here, a carrot there, a work here, a work there. Done actually for their own salvation. May have looked good. May have looked quite altruistic. Done to prove themselves. Prove their virtue. Save themselves. It won't work. It won't count. Here's another thing we see here. That motive, that self-seeking or contentious motive, and by the way, you see this contentious motive because the next thing you see is that you might say the motivating spring that motivates their life. The rhythm is this self-seeking rhythm, this mercenary rhythm in their life, but then also the thing that motivates their life, it says is they're actually opposed to the truth. They're motivated by proving God wrong, taking a different position. They don't like to hear a suggestion that they can't save themselves. They revolt from it. They're under revolt, their lives. They're motivated by a rebellion against God deep down inside. Even if they try to prove themselves good, there's a rebellion within them. It says they do not obey the truth. They're contending against God. I thought of a number of illustrations of this. This has come apparent to me many times when you're sharing the gospel with somebody. I was in South America and I was speaking to a man that was insisting that he was a good person, that he didn't really have any sins in his life, although it was quite evident and anybody who knew him, in fact, I was with his friend and his friend knew him, so his friend was reminding him of things that he did that weren't particularly not on the up and up, but he was holding to his own integrity and what he was doing and what a good person he was. And then he said, well, listen, even if I'm a little sinner, I don't need Jesus because I've done enough good things. And even if I'm a little sinner, you can look at my wife. My wife is a saint. 
She certainly is going to heaven. She does all the right things and good things. We're just having a conversation with him, but since he pointed to his wife who was sitting across the room, I decided to include her in the conversation. And so we began and continued this conversation in which we shared the gospel, which begins with an understanding of how utterly sinful we are. And so I asked her if she knew and considered herself to be a sinner, and she said she did. I asked her what did she do that convicted her of sin, and she shared some things that she knew were sins in her life. We began to look through these passages that we just looked at in Romans chapter 3. They give a description of the heart and the human heart without the cleansing power of Jesus Christ and what God sees in our heart. We read it together. It's Romans chapter 3 verses 10 through 18. You can read it later and we read through it. And I, I said, can you identify with this in your own life? And she said she could. I explained to her how Jesus had died first. I turned my attention away from him. I turned it to her. I thought, let's lead this saint, this perfect wife to Christ and see what it does for the husband came to the end of our dialogue with one another and asked her if she would like to confess her sins and repent and ask Jesus to be her savior from all of her sins and she said she wanted to and she began to bow her head to pray with me and at just that moment the husband moved over close to his wife and he put his arm around his wife and said, my wife doesn't need to pray this prayer. My wife is a good person as she is. She doesn't have to make this decision to give herself to Jesus. God will accept her because she's a good person and she's not going to pray this prayer. Well, who am I to argue with him? I just said, well, listen, all of us one day will stand before God and have to answer for ourselves. You included, your wife included. I'll leave you alone for now, but these are decisions individually you will have to make now before you come before the judge. And I left them at that. We walked away. But do you see? There is in the heart of the individual who thinks that I'll save myself. What motivates that? Ultimately, what motivates it is they are in opposition to the truth of God. They're opposed to what God is saying. The Bible says that the Spirit right now is working in all people to convict them of sin and righteousness and judgment. You're a sinner. You lack the righteousness required to be in God's presence. You are facing judgment. And the Bible says universally, that is what the Holy Spirit is bringing to bear upon the conscience of men. And they're not in agreement with it. They're trying to find a loophole. They're trying to prove that I'll live a different way. And so their life is lived in defiance of what God is telling them to prove that they're righteous. The outcome of all this is this. What does this life that's produced by putting all of our faith in Christ as opposed to a life that puts our confidence in God, what does it produce? Well, for the one who puts his faith in God and looks to Jesus Christ, Paul says the life produces this perspective, this motivation and this perspective produces a life of good works. Wonderfully. When you say, I'm not saved by good works, I'm saved by Christ alone. And I'm looking to him alone to glorify him and honoring. The wonderful thing is that it works. It produces good works. Look at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and not not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared before him that we should walk in him. You're not saved by good works, but you're saved to them. And when you put your faith completely in him, it produces within you, it generates within you by his own power, by his own grace, by his own life, a life of good works. On the other hand, you put your faith in yourself. You stand behind your own ability to save yourself on your own terms. 
You have to suppress the truth of what the word of God is saying. You have to suppress the truth of what the spirit of God is contending in your own heart. You ultimately have to live in opposition to the truth. You bristle at the thought and suggestion that you're a sinner under God's judgment who can't save himself. You'll find yourself as you go further and further along, I'll save myself by my good works. You'll find yourself instead of doing good works, you'll find that the product of your life is that you obey unrighteousness. That's what it says. You obey unrighteousness. Here's an interesting thing. I want to be free of God. I want to prove that I can do it myself. And you become a slave to sin, the Bible says. You become a slave to unrighteousness. The very impulse to be free from God and free from God's grace and free from the righteousness that God would freely give to you and prove yourself worthy in yourself will introduce you into a passage of life in which you become increasingly more and more a slave of unrighteousness a lackey to the impulses of your own flesh, your self-righteous flesh. So here's the conclusion to all we're saying here. The trajectory of believing in your own self-salvation by being good enough, righteous on your own terms, in your own moral power, is to become little by little prejudiced against the truth of God, become more and more opposed to the truth of God. God says you're not righteous in yourself. And your attempts to prove him wrong will only sink you further and further into judgment and you will become bound to obey unrighteousness and you're destined for hell. That's what's being said to the moralist who's writing in his own moralism. But place your faith in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation and a different pattern takes hold of your life. He gives you his life through faith. He gives you by his life a persevering faith in him. He gives you, by his own nature, an impulse for himself, for his glory, for his delight, for his purity. You want all of that all over yourself. He leads you into a life as a result that you can't produce on your own. He leads you to live a life where you, not in your own works, produce a work that he performs in you. This life that turns away from works. Works. <laughs> That's the amazing thing. This faith that says, not in myself, finds in yourself the power of God at work in you by faith. How wonderful, how profound, how glorious, how counterintuitive to the flesh. Because the flesh is all about self. And faith is all about Jesus and God and his glory and his honor. Now, I have to say one other thing here. If this is all true, this kind of novel new idea in North American Christianity that you can be a person of true faith in Jesus Christ and it not be seen in your behavior is thoroughly unbiblical. It's not biblical at all. Quite the opposite. That changed life, those good works that are produced because of your faith in Him and because as you're looking to Him, He projects His own life upon you and empowers you. And you work out your salvation in fear and trembling because you find that it's God that's working in you, both the will and do his perfect will. That changed life. Those good works will be the evidence before the judgment seat of Christ when you stand before the judge that all of your faith was in him alone for your salvation. So let them speak. So let them speak. Let's bow our heads and pray. Let us not be confused, O oh God. Not one thing we do, not one work we produce brings us salvation. Let us not be confused. Our salvation comes when we give up on ourselves and any hope that we can present to you anything worthy and acceptable. 
And we repent of our efforts to be free from you by our moralisms. And we put our eyes upon you and we trust in you and we believe in you. Dear Jesus, receive from you what we can't accomplish for ourselves. Let us not be confused. This is where our salvation lies. But also, oh God, confirm by that look, this truth and this promise that as we look to you, what rises in us is the fragrance of our Savior pouring his life upon us as we live for his glory and for his honor and for his well done and for the incorruptibility of his own being washing over us and filling us with himself. God, to be captive to you in this way is to be free and be offered up to ourselves the boundless, unlimited joys of eternity. But God, to be misers of ourselves, to earn our own salvation, is to bring ourselves into tribulation and anguish forever and ever. Dear Jesus, may we be a witness by our lives of the transforming power of the gospel. Give us boldness to see and speak in these ways, to recognize the pathway that people take trying to prove themselves and the vanity behind it and the futility of it so we might offer them the life that comes through Jesus Christ alone. We ask in Jesus' name. Before we sign off for this broadcast, I want to remind you of a ministry website that we've developed. It is testyourtestimony.com. Our concern is that there are many in our churches who do not have a true born-again relationship with Jesus Christ and so face the prospect of his rejection at the judgment seat in the last day. Our pity for these has made us develop the site testyourtestimony.com in order to apply the command of 2 Corinthians 13.5 to test ourselves to see whether we're in the faith. For now, I look forward to our next time partaking together of the bread of life. Till then, may God bless you.